those two stories because they remind us that even during the pandemic when churches couldn't gather, God was obviously at work working in people's lives. And I also like the aspect that uh, people had wandered away. It had been many years since uh, regular uh, relationship with Christ had been a part of their life. And yeah, really hope you enjoyed those. Um, we are continuing our Acts sermon this morning, uh, sermon number 20. Can't believe it. Holy smokes, we've been doing this a long time. But what a great book. I, I have loved preaching through this. I hope you've enjoyed listening and, uh, and applying the amazing lessons to your life. Um, today's sermon is going to be in Acts chapter 21. If you have your print Bible, I encourage you to open that. Um, what, a, what an incredible chapter. And it really talks, highlights uh, Paul's incredible commitment and faithfulness in following Jesus. And so the sermon is entitled, Jesus in First Place. I want to begin this morning by telling you about a famous missionary, probably the most famous missionary of the 1800s, Dr. Livingston, Dr. David Livingston. Uh, this guy was an incredible explorer. And in the early 1800s, he had a passion to find out what were the headwaters of the Nile River. Where did this massive river start? And uh, he just headed into the jungle, and uh, not many Western people had ever gone there before. And uh, he, was, he was a faithful missionary, an incredible explorer, but he was also passionately against the slave trade. And apparently, as he interacted with each and every African person, uh, he treated them with kindness and respect. And as a result, he is a much beloved figure. And uh, that's a memorial in the country of Tanzania to Dr. David Livingston. And then uh, there's another one in his native Scotland. That's pretty cool, the lion attacking him. I think he survived. And I came across this amazing story about David Livingston. And he received a letter while he was in Africa from the missionary society that he had gone out with. And they said, have you found a good road to where you are? If so, we want to know where that road is so we can send other people to help you. And he, said, he wrote back and he said, if you have men who will come only if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. Now that is commitment. So we're going to dive into Acts 21 and see how deeply and powerfully Jesus had worked in the Apostle Paul's life. He was brought to a place of total commitment. We're going to read the first 14 verses. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cy Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed in Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. 
We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemy, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After he had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with his said, The Holy Spirit says in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem, then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. Well, we've seen throughout the book of Acts that Luke, the author, is faithfully and accurately writing down all the details. And he feels compelled here to give us a full travel itinerary. And uh, Candace has done up a lovely little, uh, little map for us showing the route there. It would be amazing to retrace that route in a ship today. A little sail through the Aegean and through the Mediterranean. Who wants to go? I think that would be pretty amazing. So it's quite a little route. All these little places. Miletus, Kos, Rhodes, Patera, Cyprus, and then Syria. Now Syria obviously stands out for us because we have just brought a family, the Sirita family to Canada from Syria. That's been a learning curve for all of us. And you know, one of the things that I've learned that's just amazed me is the incredible religious tolerance of the Srita family and as well as the Dabul family already here in Vancouver. As Muslims, they're incredibly tolerant to the Christian faith. Last week, they were hanging out in our church and, uh, and there's a comfort there. Very different if you met someone from Saudi Arabia or Iran. They would not be caught dead walking through the doors of a Christian church. And part of the reason is these exact verses. There were Christians in the country of Syria for over 700 years before Islam even came on the scene. And I have heard from our Syrian uh, families that they grew up in the city of Damascus with church, mosque, church, mosque, church, mosque. So there's very much a built-in tolerance there. Very different if you talk to someone who's worked in the oil fields or something in a place like Saudi Arabia. Christian churches are banned. They're not allowed. They're sort of allowed on the bases where foreigners work, but they can be shut down at any moment. So history matters. You should be a history nerd like me. Just kidding. Uh, so Paul and all of his companions, Luke the author, Sopatar, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus, they all land in Tyre and they spend a week there while the ship's crew takes off the cargo they had brought to sell and puts on new cargo. And so, what do you do? There's no hotels in the first century but there were faithful Christian believers. So they sought them out and they said, yes, please come stay with us. And they stayed for an entire week. Now we aren't given a lot of details, but we know that the visit went well. Paul and his companions made a good impression. 
and to the point where this church is really sad to see them go. They are, in the end, they accompany them down to the beach. They all kneel together and pray. And Paul includes an interesting detail. He says, all the wives and children came down with us. Now, this local group of believers didn't fully grasp kind of who they had in their midst. I mean, they probably had heard of Paul to some extent, but they would simply perceive him as a a good godly man who is faithfully uh, preaching the gospel, faithfully planning churches. They don't know that they actually have in their midst the greatest church planter and evangelist and divinely inspired author that would pen the words of probably half of the second half of the Bible, the New Testament. They have Luke in their midst, the incredibly exact and detailed author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. That little group of believers in Tyre wouldn't have fully grasped or appreciated it all. They just knew they were good guys. Now, I'm convinced that because Luke tells us the women and children came down to the beach to say goodbye, I'm convinced that they were really good house guests. Because if Paul and his companions trashed the house where they stayed, they were rude and demanding, you can bet that the women and children would have been like, see you later. I'm not going to the beach to say goodbye to those guys. And I actually think that's a really interesting and relevant point. On my Twitter feed this week, I we came up a really interesting kind of bizarre story. And it was about a Christian couple down in the States, and they attended a a big, huge Christian conference in Louisville, Kentucky. And it was entitled T4G, which stands for Together for the Gospel. And the total attendance at this conference was over 12,000 people. Holy smokes, that's bigger than all of Ladysmith. It's amazing. That's a lot of people at one conference. And so this couple attended. They thought it was a great conference, great speakers. They were really challenged. It was amazing stuff. And at the end, they thought, you know what? We're going to conduct our own little personal poll. And through the conference, they'd figure out the seven most popular restaurants that conference attenders were going to. And so they went back, and they talked to the waiters and waitresses. And they said, said, so, there was a huge conference in town, 12,000 people. Lots of people came in to eat. How were your guests? And they're like, well, they were pretty rude, pretty demanding. Uh, So that wasn't too encouraging. And then they said, so all these people from this conference, do you know what the conference was about? And only one out of the seven churches knew anything about it. And they said, it's some Jesus churchy thing. That's all they'd kind of gotten. And when I read that little story and I was contrasting it with Luke or Acts 21, I just thought, you know what? What a missed opportunity. That is not good. That is a major lost opportunity. 12,000 people could have left an incredible gospel feeling, you know, in the city of Louisville, Kentucky. There was nobody after the conference going down to the local bridge, kneeling and praying with the conference attenders, saying, please come back someday. Very, very different. And it reminds me that how we act in everyday life, even if it's as simple as going out for a meal, it really 
matters. As the famous Brennan Manning quote powerfully challenges and reminds us, he says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Those are pretty powerful words to ponder. Well, this voyage continues. They leave on the ship again from Tyre. They go to Ptolemy. Finally end up in Caesarea. I actually got to go there in 2012 when I visited Israel. And there's still a Colosseum there that uh, Herod the Great built in honor of himself. And uh, the ruins still stand. You can walk into it. Pretty amazing. The Mediterranean Ocean's right there. And Luke tells us that in that city, he stayed with Philip the evangelist and his four daughters who all prophesied. It described Philip as one of the seven. Now, you may be here thinking this morning, Darren, what's one of the seven? What, What are you talking about? What does that refer to? Well, it actually goes back to the first seven deacons appointed in the early church in Jerusalem. And we read that in Acts chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. We will give our attention to prayer, ministry of the Word. Proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip and all these other guys. So that is what it means when it says Philip was one of the seven. Now, he's got four daughters. They're probably maybe just 20 or 21, probably down to 19, 17, something like that. And it makes the interesting point that they are unmarried. I don't know what the deal was. They were searching for good godly guys in their local high school, but just couldn't find any. Whatever the issues were, they were uh, faithful girls and God used them to prophesy. Well, now we come to this crucial moment where the Holy Spirit of God sends a warning to Paul through these early believers, and he chooses to use this man named Agabus. And so Agabus comes down, and he's got shades of kind of an Old Testament prophet. He, he kind of does an a object lesson. He asks for Paul's belt, and he binds his hands, and he says, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, the difference between how Paul's companions and Philip's household, how they react and how Paul reacts is in stark contrast. Luke and all these other believers, they are pleading with Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. We know what's going to happen if you go there. Now, this is beautiful. They care about him. They don't want to see him locked up. They don't want to see him killed. This is good Christian love in action. And Paul appreciates it. He says, why are you weeping? Why are you breaking my heart? He's essentially saying, in the Darren Phillips paraphrase, folks, I'm feeling the love. But here's the deal. I have already settled the matter in my heart. Listen to Paul's rock-solid commitment and his fearless obedience to Jesus no matter the cost. He says, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Wow, what a statement. 
all of Paul's companions, Luke, Sopatar, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, and Trophimus, that's quite a mouthful, they are filled with grief and fear on Paul's behalf. But Paul himself awaits what's coming to him. He faces it with a hardened will, total commitment to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Kind of reminds me of the great little story of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered a massive empire, stretched all the way from India on one end, all the way through the Mediterranean on the other. And there's a story that says there was a soldier in the army whose name was also Alexander. And in a number of battles, this soldier had run away. He'd shown uh, cowardice, not courage. And he was a sloppy soldier. He could never keep his equipment organized. He was just a bit of a disaster. And finally, out of frustration, his commander hauls him in front of Alexander. And Alexander looks at him and he goes, Soldier, what is your name? The guy's like, Alexander. Kind of whispers it. He's like, what? I can't hear you. Speak up. He says, uh, Alexander. He goes, one more time, what is your name? And he says, my name, sir, is Alexander. And Alexander looks at him and he says, well, either change your conduct or change your name. And you know, if you think about it, if that's what was expected of followers of Alexander the Great, who when you look back in history was a prideful, arrogant, flawed, ego-driven human conqueror, then how much more should our commitment to Christ be to honor his name and reputation? Now, maybe you're listening online, maybe you're here this morning, and you look at your own heart and you say, you know what? I am far, far less committed to Jesus than Paul was. I challenge you, spend some time thinking and praying about that this week. The risen Lord of glory went to the cross for you, for me. He deserves nothing less than total commitment from us. All right, we're going to pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 21. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, How many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What should we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. 
As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrificed idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Interesting passage. First, we think, what is going on here? This is really confusing. Well, we need to know a few little things that are helpful. Number one, while Paul has been doing all these missionary journeys, while all these years have elapsed, the church in Jerusalem has grown by leaps and bounds. Scholars think that probably the early church in Jerusalem at this point in history was probably over 6,000 people. Amazing. Now, these believers were Jewish people who had come to faith. They would meet in homes to share a meal, pray, read scripture, have communion together, and then once a week, they would gather at the temple in corporate prayer and teaching. James, the half brother of Jesus, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he would go on to write the book of James in the second half of the Bible. Now, people have pointed out that James himself is an incredible piece of evidence that Jesus truly is who he said he was. Think about James and Jesus growing up. In Nazareth, Joseph and Mary are their mother and father, I mean, this is the brother that Jesus would have fought over the last cookie on the plate. They would have wrestled in the mud together. They would have gone on adventures as 10-year-olds out into the wilderness. They probably told each other to shut up and go to sleep. When they were in their teen years, they would have competitions. Who's the best looking? Who's the strongest? All that kind of stuff. Maybe as they matured into young adults, they were both probably employed in their father's trade of carpentry and construction. Now, if you think about it, if you have a brother or a sister, pretty hard if you think back as much as you love them to accept that they might be the savior of the world. I mean, that is a big ask. That is a massive step of belief. And we are given, by the time Jesus starts his public ministry at age 30, we are given a fascinating little glimpse into the interaction between Jesus and his brothers, one of whom would have been James. John chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, so show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So James does not believe. Three years later, Jesus suffered, is crucified. After three days in the tomb, is resurrected to new life. And we have this amazing verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 which I think we're going to throw up. There it is. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Jesus singled out his brother James and met him and proved that he was in fact resurrected from the dead. James was convinced and the whole direction of his life changed. Maybe you're here in person this morning watching online. You are fascinated by Jesus but you just can't quite bring yourself to believe. Here's a challenging thought. What explanation do you have 
What explanation can you come up with that James went from a disbelieving young adult in his late 20s to the leader of the early church in Jerusalem? According to the writer uh, Giuseppius in the 2nd century, James would go on years later in AD 62 to be killed by a party of Pharisees for preaching the good news about Jesus to a large crowd. Now, if you don't yet believe in Jesus, an even harder question is, what is your explanation for the transformation of his brother James from disbeliever to be willing to die for Jesus? That is quite a remarkable transformation. All right, back to our account in Luke, Luke 21. Paul, Luke, and the group of men he is training meet with James and the other leaders of the church in Jerusalem. They tell them all about the missionary journeys that have been happening, how they went through the Roman province of Asia, what we call Turkey today, through Macedonia, northern Greece, through Greece, going to Athens, all these different places they have been. They tell them about the miraculous earthquake in, in Philippi, the shook the gates of the prison, they were able to escape. The miraculous calming of the rioting crowd in Ephesus would tell them about Eutychus, the young guy who fell three stories out of a window in a house and died, and then they prayed and he came back to life. They tell them about the thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus, churches being planted and established. We get to verse 20, and that is so significant. It says, when they heard this, they praised God. Now, these leaders in the church in Jerusalem, we have to remember, are faithful, lifelong Jews. From children, they have been taught to view themselves as separate from the non-Jewish world. They've been taught to view Gentiles or non-Jews with a measure of, of caution at best and, and real fear at worst. But the hearts of these leaders have been so transformed by Jesus that all of that is gone. They are excited. They are standing up and cheering that God has worked so powerfully amongst the Gentiles. We have a picture of James. Look how happy he is. He is just stoked for life there. Okay, maybe not. They probably didn't paint you with much of a smile, but I'll bet James was happy in his heart. Now, we have this scene, we have the background on the situation. We come to this really interesting development. Rumors were circulating that wherever Paul preached, wherever he planted churches, and he encountered the local Jewish community, he was telling them to become un-Jewish. Stop circumcising your children. Uh, stop uh, observing the Sabbath. Stop doing all these Jewish things. I know it's shocking that rumors could ever happen in a church context. It's just shocking. But the rumor was that Paul was teaching all these people to abandon their culture. And so Paul has to stand up in front of the elders and say, no, 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 no. They do not have to become un-Jewish to follow Jesus. Now, they don't follow the law to be saved, but they are free to follow it culturally. Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce that I've quoted in this series, he clears up what this situation is all about. He says, there was, however, a way in which Paul himself could publicly contradict the rumors. If we were seen publicly taking part in one of these ancestral customs, 
it would be realized that he really was a pious and observant Jew. Now, the text tells us there was four guys who were about to take a Nazarite vow. And you're thinking, what in the world is that? Well, it's a vow that was taken at certain occasions in the Old Testament, and it involves several things. You were not allowed to cut your hair for a period of time. Uh, you were not allowed to drink wine or anything fermented. Uh, you were not allowed to touch a dead body. And so these four gentlemen at some point have become Jewish, in the Jewish world, ritually unclean. And so in order to contradict that, they are taking this Nazarite vow. And so the leaders in the church in Jerusalem says, Paul, why don't you join in with them? In fact, pay their expenses. They're going to have to have their heads shaved. You're going to have to buy some animals, like probably doves or something, to, to sacrifice at the temple. You pay their expenses. You join in. You get your head shaved. And that will be a visible sign, a, a symbol to all the people living in Jerusalem that these rumors aren't true. And Paul says, okay, I'll do that. And Paul would actually later write out this principle in his letter to the church back in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 9.20, he says, To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. You see, Paul's heart was for everyone in every culture, every faith to come in repentance and faith to Jesus. And he was willing to do whatever it took. There's an amazing book that came out in the 1970s. I remember my parents had a copy called Peace Child. It was written by a missionary named Don Richardson. And in 1962, Don and his wife Carol and their seven-month-old baby went to work among the Sawi tribe of what was then called Dutch New Guinea. And they went with this missions organization, Regions Beyond Missionary Union. And the Sawi tribe had had very little to no contact with the outside world in the early 1960s. And so they lived with them and uh, got to know them. And it was an extremely trying circumstance. Malaria, dysentery, hepatitis, and constant violence were the experience of these early missionaries. In their new home in the jungle, the Richardsons tried to learn the Sawi language. Apparently, it's incredibly complex. Uh, for a verb, there are 19 different tenses for every verb. And so Don Richardson thought, the only way I'm ever going to be able to help these people uh, understand the Gospels, I've got to learn this language. And so he worked really, really hard at learning this. And he would spend 8 to 10 hours a day with the people learning their language. Finally, he figured, okay, I've got enough of the language that I can begin to explain the gospel to them. And the way their culture was, was very different, based on a different set of values. And when he got to the gospels and he explained about Jesus, and he got to his crucifixion, they thought that Judas was the hero of the story. They held someone who could trick someone or betray someone in very high esteem. And they thought, Jesus, who's this guy? He got fooled. 
I'm not following him. That's ridiculous. And Don Richardson was just banging his head against the wall. He's like, how do I break through in this culture? This is so difficult. They've, they've taken the story all completely wrong. And the, the tribes, there was three kind of main villages, and they were constantly at war with each other at this time. And after several years, the Richardsons were so discouraged, and they told the leaders of the tribes, they said, maybe we should move on. Maybe we should go. But they really, really liked them. They didn't want them to go. Don's wife, Carol, was a nurse. She did incredible medical care for them. Don was just incredible with the people. They, they really liked him. And they, they finally realized, okay, we've, we've got to get these people to stay. So they finally said, we will have a ceremony. And so the Richardson are like, what? Uh, what are you going to do? I don't understand what's happening. And they, taught, they showed them. They gathered all three villages together. And they did this incredible ceremony. And several of the tribe's leaders would take their brand new baby sons or daughters and they would give them to their, their enemies, the tribe they had been trying to kill and fight with. And that tribe, in turn, would give their children to this tribe. And they called this concept the peace child. And it finally hit Don Richardson. This is the gospel. This is my end. This makes sense. And he was able to explain to all three tribes, this is what God did. He sent his one and only son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it. Jesus is the ultimate peace child. And God used that so powerfully and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these Sowie tribesmen gave their hearts in faith to Christ. Absolutely incredible. Now, there were aspects of their culture that the Richardsons loved. They praised them for their music, their dance, their dress, their food. They were encouraged to keep all those aspects of their culture. But they said there's three things in your culture that are wrong, that are against God, that are not good things. Your constant fighting, your cannibalism, and the way that you're murdering people and presenting the heads as trophies. This has got to stop. And they did. And that's an extreme example of what Paul was doing in this chapter. Paul is willing to keep the culture of the Jewish people, of his own people, He's willing to say that there's so many aspects of our culture that I affirm that are good. I will participate in this vow. I will have my head shaved. I will go to the temple, offer sacrifices. Now, let me be clear. We're not doing this so that God accepts us, but I can do it because it affirms culture in all times, all places, and all time periods. Very, very powerful. Well, now we come to the final end, the turning point of the story. Paul follows through on the vow. He gets his head shaved, and all these guys go off to the temple, and he offers the sacrifice. And that's where the riot starts. I'm going to pick it up in verse 27. <clears throat> 
When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused. People came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While, while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and the soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, May I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied? Aren't you the Egyptian who started revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Poor Paul. Everywhere he goes, a riot starts. I'm amazed at Paul's love and commitment to his fellow Jews, his people. Despite the fact that all over the Mediterranean, people had tried to kill him, Paul still loves his fellow Jews. Absolutely amazing. Now, Paul comes across as quite calm in this situation, despite the fact that most of the crowd is beating him and then trying to kill him. Wow. Paul's sort of saying to himself, well, if I, this is my day to go out, I'm going out with a bang. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when he, they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, What an incredible thing. One minute before, this crowd is dead set on ripping Paul's limbs off. Now Paul is asking permission to speak to the crowd. When I read that this week, I thought, man, that challenges me to the core. Am I at such a deep place of discipleship that I would attempt for God to use me to proclaim the gospel to a group that was trying to kill me one minute before? I love this picture. It's entitled Adoration of the Christ Child by a guy in the 15th century, Garrett von Honhorst. The look of everyone around the manger of Jesus when he was born, that's adoration, that's love. And in turn, you can see their faces are lit up from the Christ child. And when I thought about the peace child book, I thought, yeah, Jesus is the ultimate peace child. And I think about Paul and what he was willing to do. And I ask myself, is that me? Has God worked in my life to bring me to a place where I would compassionately turn 
and attempt to explain the gospel to an angry crowd? And I think I can honestly say no. My feeling would be, all right, you knuckleheads, I tried, you're on your own, your guilt is on your own head, good luck with that. But when I think about the amazing journey of learning to follow Jesus, it hits me that it is incredibly simple to start, but it is endlessly challenging. All we need to begin a relationship with Jesus, come to a real place of belief in Him, humble ourselves, admit we're a sinful schmuck, turn in repentance and faith, make Jesus the Lord of our life. Very simple. But getting to the place where you can forgive people who are trying to kill you and compassionately share the good news of the gospel with them, that, my friends, takes a lifetime. Now you're saying, Darren, what happens next? Paul's there. He's, he's about to speak to the crowd. Do they try to kill him? What does he say? Sorry, got to come back next week. Uh, we're going to see how it all turns out. I think it's just like a TV show or movie. We are leaving you on a cliffhanger, just like James Bond, about to be sliced by the laser in Goldfinger. Uh, we are leaving on a cliffhanger. Ray, come and pray for us.